You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. This is Counterculture with Marie and my guest this morning is Denise Ritchie, founder of Stop Demand. She's got a legal background and a very sharp mind and is very passionate about the issue of prostitution and the denigration and selling of women in New Zealand. Denise, some of the information you've sent me in preparation for this is eye-opening. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Good morning, Marie, and thanks for having us on. No, it's so good to have you. Firstly, Stop Demand, what is it? Stop Demand was set up in uh, 2003, so that's 20 years ago. At, uh, earlier than that, 10 years uh, prior to that, I had been working in the, the global sex trade field. Um, oddly enough, initially as a, a senior, a sort of an, a mature student at law school, and I put together a a dissertation on New Zealand looking at changing its laws so we could prosecute our child sex offenders and pedophiles who were raping children overseas. At that stage, you could only prosecute for uh, crimes that are committed on your territory. So this was called extraterritorial law. And as a result of that, connected with a a well-known international organisation, got on their international board out of Bangkok, and we were focused on uh, child prostitution, trafficking, and then a few years later, with the internet, the proliferation, we got involved in child sex abuse material and the trading of that. Uh, But it was some years later that I thought, There's amazing work being done all around the world on protecting children. But this trade is like any trade, supply and demand. And these children were being supplied because there was a demand. I mean, traffickers, for example, they traffic a commodity. I mean, if red socks were in, they'd be trafficking red socks. But body parts of women and children were what were being trafficked as the product. It made me realise that because the trade seemed to be getting worse the longer I was involved with it, that we really hadn't put any energy into looking at demand. So as a result, uh, Stop Demand was set up to start looking at the other side of the coin and saying, what is it that uh, is driving demand? What are the attitudes and behaviours? And it has to be said uh, that it is men, primarily men, overwhelmingly men, who are the consumers of women and prostitution in the other trades. So we set up Stop Demand. We do have six platforms. We have three, which is uh, the the trade, uh, my area of expertise, prostitution, pornography and trafficking. Uh, the other three areas, because we're dealing with male attitudes, also addresses rape, including incest, rape and war, and then sexual denigration. Genesis of, you know, even men in boardrooms, rugby clubs, telling rape jokes. You know, that's where it starts. And, uh, yeah, so we're a very small group. Um, our budget this year was less than 20000 We don't have any staff. Um, I basically do uh, the work from time to time, and we're run by a board. In terms of demand, since the decriminalisation of prostitution in 2003, mm-hmm. has demand in this country gone up or gone down? Gone up. We would say there's plenty of evidence, albeit anecdotal, that it has gone up because if you normalise something, then there is every chance it uh, will go up. And when I refer to some of the cases, uh, that will become evident. Um, But, Marie, maybe I just would kick off that the reason we wanted to get a bit of energy around this issue uh, just recently, well, this in the last few weeks, is that 20 years ago New Zealand took the step of decriminalising prostitution. And that was, we were one of the first countries in the world to do that. I mean, there have been various models around the world around criminalisation, but New Zealand decided to decriminalise prostitution. And just for listeners, Mm. we've seen this with marijuana as well, explain the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation, because there is a very distinct difference. And I think people get the two conflated. Right. With legalisation, there's a lot more regulation around uh, taxes. There's a lot more control over the setting of an industry or a sector, for example. Decriminalisation seems to be a softer approach, but in a way it has a lot more gaps. So in other words, what happened prior to decriminalisation was that women could be charged with uh, a criminal activity. Uh, so could the men because it was criminalised right across the board. And the belief was that if the selling of sex were to be decriminalised, then uh, it would make it safer for women. Now, there's been a number of problems that have arisen out of that because not only when you decriminalise a trade, 
you won't only decriminalise it for the, the sellers, but also for the buyers for the pimps, for the brothel owners. So this this law, in, in effect, turned pimps, which can include gangs, and turned them into respectable business people. So therein lay another problem. One of the difficulties has been that uh, in the law, part of the law was that police had to have a hands-off approach. So police just can't go into a brothel like they could have before. So that is another huge gap in the existing law if there is uh, if there are uh, behaviors and and crimes being committed in brothels it is very unlikely that those will get to uh, be notified unless a woman or a brothel owner takes that step of doing so so in a way the law has left women a lot more vulnerable um, in many respects we should also point out that the prostitution in New Zealand really exist across three uh, sectors. One is the street. Uh, the other is what's called the managed indoor, which would be like brothels. And the third is private indoor. They're called soups. So they are small owner-operated brothels. It is quite mind-blowing, really, to think in terms of the law that decriminalisation almost has created a completely unregulated wild west mm-hmm. of selling women. In, well, that's in- right. Yes, the comments that have come to us over the years, I think could be, well, we've got some quotes that uh, we put out in our media release a short while ago, but one survivor who has uh, been in the trade, and we don't call it an industry or work, we don't believe it deserves that respectability, so stopped man calls it a a trade, uh, denoting again supply and demand. Um, And this survivor wrote, Decriminalising prostitution has simply strengthened and emboldened misogynistic attitudes amongst New Zealand sex buyers. I believe that for many punters, causing mental discomfort to the girl or woman they buy is necessary for them to truly enjoy the experience. I thought I had a low self-esteem at 17, but prostitution has absolutely destroyed it. And another woman, Sarah, has written of her experiences, and this is available uh, on a website uh, for anybody to read. We can give the details later. But her experiences before and after prostit- uh, decriminalisation, she said prostitution is not a life and not work, definitely not work, paid rape, most definitely. You are not getting the happy hooker narrative that politicians, and in particular New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, want us to, to take on board. So we wanted to put a contrary position forward because we knew that New Zealand Prostitutes Collective were planning a three-day hui of celebration and we thought we need to put forward another narrative and that there was very little for New Zealand to celebrate. I think we need to make it very clear, Marie, at the outset, this has not been anti-sex. Okay, this is not a position about being anti-sex. People need to hear that. We distinguish it from, say, platforms like Tinder that facilitate hookup for parties because those parties both want sex or if there's more than two. He wants sex, she wants sex. That's their business. Okay, we have no issue over that. But what we're saying is prostitution is a very, very different beast because it's a trade where typically only one party wants sex, and that's the sex buyer. And already that should raise to us a big red flag. And in a day where we're trying to teach people about consent, sexual consent should be enthusiastic. Yes, you will will be pushed to find anyone in prostitution who is giving enthusiastic consent for a sexual experience day in, day out, multiple times a day. So therein lies the problem. And what we're finding is that many of these men, they believe that they've bought the right to inflict on their purchase acts and abuse that survivors tell us that they believe would never be consented to by their wives or their partners or even by Tinder hookups. So they feel that because one woman, interestingly, I heard her being interviewed this uh, last week, she said that when she first got into prostitution and it was illegal before the uh, decriminalisation, she picked up that most of her clients felt embarrassed, right? It was something they knew was against the law and something they shouldn't be doing. But of course, now they've got the government's stamp of approval. It is a legally sanctioned act for men 
to go in and just pay for women as they wish and demand any sort of services as they wish. And because there's no recourse for um, if any of these women, particularly those who are working in brothels, were to lay a complaint, and you can read many survivor stories where they were horrifically treated by a client, but of course the brothel doesn't want to risk having the police come round. The girls are told to be quiet about it, suck it up, etc. And there was a story in the Herald uh, a couple of years back where in a Whangarei brothel, interestingly, it was touted as an ethical brothel. A woman who uh, was working on her very first day believed her first, well, I think it was her first client, but on her very first day at the brothel, she believed that she had been raped by the buyer and she even took the case to court and he was acquitted. You know, the law is there to protect women, but women are not being protected. And this is just the indoor sector. You know, don't get us started on the street sector. Uh, because we know, uh, and in our media release, which uh, anyone can find on our website just under news, there's been some terrible, terrible, extreme ends of violence uh, against, uh, we've listed a number of women. Uh, many of them will be names that listeners are familiar with. Bella Tapania, Renee Duckmanton, uh, Mallory Manning, Susie Sutherland, a woman who's 24, but she got named depression to protect her daughter, reading about her mother's murder later on. But these are women, since decriminalisation, who were viciously and variously raped, bashed, set on fire, strangled, mutilated, and repeatedly run over and dumped, and most of those by sex buyers. Now, that law did not protect them. In fact, is a good argument to say is but for the normalisation of allowing those women to be out in the street, this is not victim blaming, but but for that law, but for their sense that it was okay for them to prostitute, those women would most likely still be living today. So there's so much BS in the narrative that's going on. Pre-decriminalisation, mm. one of the assumptions of women entering sex work is mm. uh, generally poverty, drug abuse or drug addiction, yep. the need or the influence of a stronger male person in their life, i.e. partner or parent, that forces mm -hmm. them into that work. Right. With decriminalisation now, where you have a legal barrier to that's been removed, mm -hmm. so there are no consequences if you are arrested, do you believe that some of these women entering sex work have a Pollyanna view of what they're going into, that they've Definitely. been sold this dream through OnlyFans or pornography or social media and that they're going to go in, it's going to be like one of their Tinder hookups and it's all going to be champagne and giggles and they're going to earn a bit of money for it and that's not the reality? Is there, is there that sort of perception or not? Absolutely correct. Look, just while we're talking about that, and I'm hoping that maybe uh, you might get an opportunity to interview Ali Marie Diamond, a wonderful, wonderful woman, a survivor, Kiwi. She set up a survivor grassroots group and it's called Wahini Toa, T-O-A, Rising. Wahini Toa Rise, if, if any listener wanted to look further into the survivors' experiences, she has a survivor stories page. And to read the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. But one of the common, uh, the common themes has been that for young people, they have seen alluring ads and that's how they've got into it they haven't got money they've seen big signs up girls girls makes lots of money you don't need any experience you know blah 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 and it's drawing it in and drawing people in so uh, decriminalization has definitely lured desperate young women and also migrants into the trade. So you're right Marie uh, but on top of that is also uh, fueling the uh, increasing number of children and young people because you cannot sell contractually under law. You cannot uh, enter a contract if you're under 18. You're not deemed to be competent enough. That's in keeping with the UN conventions, etc. So that's why prostitution is set at 18 uh, as opposed to age of consent being 16 because, well, we would say if it was set anywhere, it should be way higher. Anyone under 18 is deemed to be in an illegal trade. Now, the normalisation of this trade has reached the, uh, the, the sort of bottom rung level whereby Maori wardens would report to us years ago of children in school uniforms, girls in school uniforms being dropped off even by parents in cars sitting waiting and so the girls could go and do a few blowjobs on, on their way to school. Because it's become so normalised and auntie is doing this work and, okay, she's 18, what it's come to now 
is, is, is the sexual exploitation of children is no longer recognised as a sex crime against a child. It's just become a normal activity, but they're a bit naughty because they're doing it a bit too young. So that's the normalisation of process that decriminalisation has fed into. And more uh, concerning to us would be what is the message that it sends to men and boys? One of the examples that we'll get to later is this uh, fantastic model called the Nordic model. But currently in New Zealand, what our politicians and what our laws have said to guys is there's nothing wrong. You've got the, the stamp of approval by, by our laws. And if you're feeling randy, if you're with a team of blokes one night, you're drunk and you think, let's go and screw a hooker. Who's got a bit of money? Who's got a credit card? And they can just go off and find a woman and and just do what they want to her. That's the sort of messaging we're saying, well, hang on a minute, that is just not teaching dignity and respect and, and working towards gender equity society when you've got guys that have got that attitude. And when you look at some of the, the information that's coming out of schools, uh, like Christchurch Boys School and Christchurch Girls School some years ago, where the girls were saying that they just, um, you know, were feeling, young women today are feeling so overly sexualised by young men. And I think this is a law that feeds into that as well. And our feminist colleagues overseas who've taken a different approach over the years have approached me and said, we are baffled, particularly the feminists saying, we cannot understand how so-called feminist politicians in your country even remotely begin to think that this is an acceptable form of behaviour. Because in most countries now, prostitution is definitely recognised as violence towards women. And my explanation uh, I have is I just think that the the law, New Zealand has a high tolerance and a very low bar when it comes to violence against women. I mean, as we know, Marie, we we sit right at the top in the OECD in our rates of violence against women, domestic violence. And I just see that prostitution sits within that mulot of violence and we have an accommodation of it in a way that other countries do not tolerate it. And you're right. Our criteria in terms of a lot of OECD metrics are awful. Mm. Lowest rates of reading and mathematics, for example, which from my perspective, that poor education could be one of the precursors feeding into young women having to enter into an industry and trade that is so detrimental to themselves because they're, you know, they don't see any other options. I mean, all of this mm. is interconnected and this normalization, culturally, mm. we're seeing things move and change here now over the last few years. I think a lot of people are waking up, pink, pink pilling, we're calling it. They're sort of beginning to see things are seriously wrong. But these sorts of things have been going on, as you said, 20 years since the decriminalization of prostitution. And that was hailed as this great moment. I do have a question around the Prostitutes Collective because, of course, you know, their founder has now got a damehood, is that right? They, they exactly. Now, yeah, exactly. so completely adorated by the powers that be. What is their argument? What What are they saying? That How are they believing 20 years on that this is working? I think you have to ask them that. I suspect what they, they're saying is that they have more freedom to report violence to the police than they had prior to decriminalisation. And that may well be true, but of course our argument is the violence has to take place to start with. And what we're trying to do is eliminate violence and what they're trying to do is minimise violence. But once the violence has happened, I mean, the law didn't help any of those, those murdered women, but even more so, the woman is not helping the... I guess it's the toll that's been taken on uh, a lot of women on a day-to-day-to-day-to-day drip-fed basis. You're going to get a few women that are in the NZPC cohort by saying, yes, uh, they think it's a great model. They have fabulous clients. They're all Richard Gere and it's all pretty women, which, of course, is just a narrative. What we would call is just um, cognitive dissonance, you know, that there is a lot of, I guess, yeah, glossing over the realities. It's not a, a happy hooker narrative for the vast majority of women and girls who will admit to being broken. A lot of them were broken before they even came into the into the trade. So where does things like gang culture fit in? And I'm not just talking Māori Polynesian gang here. I'm talking mm-hmm. also Asian organised crime. Wherever there is money to be made, yep. gangs yep. can be found. And of I am course. assuming that they are prevalent in prostitution as they've always been. They must be making bank on this, surely. 
Oh, they are. And the police aren't interested uh, in investigating gangs are not on the horizons. And yet we've linked uh, uh, articles that talk about the gangs have been uh, amongst the other laws, the laws are the winners. When we look at winners, I mean, we ironically, are, you know, tongue-in-cheek are looking at who has stood to benefit from this law, and I can tell you who hasn't, and that's women. Well, as far as the gangs go, uh, Wahini Tower Rising, when they put out a media release, they say that many of their own women that they support have been trafficked as children and they're too afraid to be approaching police because they've got fear of reprisals from their pimps, from gangs, from gang members from other managers, peers, and even their families. So gangs are right under the radar, and as are traffickers. Now, prostitutes collective quite rightly don't want trafficking to be conflated with with prostitution itself. And I do have some sympathy for that position. However, traffic only occurs into the sex trade, so they are interconnected whether they like it or not. Now, we know even before decriminalisation that we had gangs uh, uh, well, people trafficked into New Zealand for the sex trade because back in 1999 and 2000, I, I was quite instrumental in bringing this to the attention of some of the media and there were some very high-profile cases. But what we've got now is immigration don't seem to have any political will and energy to follow up on gangs and repeatedly NZPC says there is no trafficking in New Zealand now really interesting back in 2009 we had a trafficking a trafficking uh, conference down in Wellington for three days and of course trafficking for immigration basically is around horticulture fishing other other industries and I've commonly put my hand up and said well what about the sex trade oh no there's no trafficking here this very interesting occasion, a man on the second day came barreling up onto the stage. He introduced himself, Jeremy Bialetti, a barrister in Auckland. He said, I've listened to you on RNZ saying there's no traffic here and I've come to tell you that's utter BS. I am acting for three trafficked women from the Ukraine. And so this is the kind of swept under the table nobody wants to talk about. So it was interesting, his case, these women, uh, the trafficking gang was a gang from Kiev in the Ukraine. These women had been trafficked, and they they were all around the 20th age group at that time. They were trafficked to Israel. They didn't have passports, etc. So they got turfed out of Israel and they got trafficked to New Zealand. This is post-decriminalisation. Because New Zealand, we've removed that whole layer of legality over the sex trade. So New Zealand's a perfect destination for traffickers. So these three women are here. They were all being charged by immigration on passport fraud. He could not get them recognised as uh, trafficking victims. He could not believe that the courts, the judge, that just it was just right under the radar. Since then, in recent years, I've had a woman from a major city here who is a madam. She runs a brothel. She was telling me about the number of other trafficking gangs that are here. That woman, and one of them she mentioned was Brazilians. They've set up trafficking routes from Brazil to New Zealand for the sex trade. Of course, the Asian Asian groups have been here for many many decades. What she said was the trafficking victims who were being forced to do, say, no condom sex, reduce rape, along with illegals that shouldn't be in the sex industry anyway because Section 19 prohibits it, they were undercutting them. And she said, my girls can't make enough profit for me. I'm looking at moving my establishment over to Australia. Uh, But she was not angry about decriminalisation. She's angry about all the illegals and the traffic people here that are undercutting their their so-called profits. So for immigration, police, NCPC to say, oh no, we don't have any trafficking issues is just really frustrating. I'm sitting here really honestly not knowing what to say because this, like so many of these cultural issues, it goes on behind a veil of secrecy and censorship. No one wants to talk about it. I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it today. I want to start talking about, you've mentioned it several times, the normalisation of things. And with a number of this cultural creep that we've seen over the last couple of years, things that now, and I've discussed this endlessly on the transgender issue, things that seem would have been utterly ridiculous even only a few years ago and now trying to be normalised. With prostitution, I want to dive into a bit into pornography because pornography has been around since time immemorial, but the internet has put porn on steroids and it has literally put porn into the pockets of every single little boy that's at high schools. Mm-hmm. I worry. I have two teenage sons. I We speak very openly about this sort of stuff because I don't want Mama Bear, she don't want any rude surprises. Mm. But I worry about the 
free open access to porn for -hmm. young men, the message that it's sending to them in terms of good sexual health manners and conduct and how women should be treated. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, look, totally on board there. What I would say is, look, I'd love to have an in-depth discussion on, on pornography, but I've got so much more material on this prostitution, so it would be great if we could do that sort of almost as a separate um, as a separate interview. But what Consider I will it say done, is, Denise. We, okay, we but, can do but, that. Yeah, but what I will say for now is you are right. Pornography has become so, well, apart from it being so mainstream and accessible, it has become so increasingly degrading of women and cruel towards women. And this is what young boys accessing now. And the word I use is corrosive. It has corroded boys and men's connectedness to themselves and the kind of sex that they are looking for and looking at doing, because it's not a shared giving, it's not reciprocal, a doing to woman is often vicious and it's it's cruel and it's certainly not about any desire to pleasure a partner. It's about what they can do and in fact inflicting hurt on someone, it's a little bit like one of the survivors said in prostitution, to get off it really requires men to, to actually hurt person that they are having sex with and belittling so some of the common um, words that we'd use around it is is it's abusive it's degrading it belittles women it inflicts pain in order to get off and interestingly another case I was involved in recently got a bit of media focus on is the whatsapp group people around the the men around the the jazz brothers because same sort of attitudes these men have got a degree of callousness towards women uh, massive narcissism about uh, men's entitlement and so I noticed that increasingly in court cases around rape, there'll be mentions of biting, pulling hair. That was in the Jazz Brothers. These are the Christchurch the, the Christ Brothers. Hooch, yeah, Mother, Mother Hooch, Mama Hooch. Mama Hooch, yeah. The behaviours that are coming out in court cases are 100% porn-driven. porn, porn Yeah, they're emulating what they've seen on porn. And this is what a lot of survivors and prostitution are saying is men come in and they do Things to us that they've seen in porn, they would never do at home. And even worse, the brothels are frequently streaming live porn into the rooms where the girls are and the buyers are. So porn is having a devastating impact on relationships all over. But yes, I do think while it it is relevant to the comments that I've just made here in prostitution, it is deserving of a much bigger discussion, which I'm I'm very happy to have. No, we can certainly dive into that. You're right. It sounds like that that is a much, much bigger discussion on its own. So then let's look at the normalisation in terms of how people transact. Okay. And you shared some stuff with me just before we got started that blew my socks off. So so tell us a little bit more about that. Of course, part of normalising is that there has been approval for sexual services to be advertised. Uh, now, I take my hat off, full respect for the likes of uh, Seek and Trade Me, who refuse to allow uh, ads for sexual services on their platforms, but not so the likes of the Herald NZME. And I'm happy to publicly out them because we have publicly outed them through the media over the years. Uh, and I have personally emailed the CEO and all the board members. So they, if they hear this, it won't come as any surprise. But there was a terrible case, some people might remember, of a, a mother Fijian Indian woman who sold her daughter a thousand times for sex. She was able to advertise her daughter on the Herald, and I can pull up what that ad actually says. She was advertised when she was 14 as being hot, sexy, busty Indian girl aged 18. The Herald facilitated the raping of this child And at no stage after the case, this came out as evidence. We asked for a public apology from the Herald to the the victim. Of course, they uh, didn't respond to that. But this is an example of the normalisation that beforehand, when it was sort of an embarrassing secretive, oh, we shouldn't really be doing this uh, behaviour, it's now just so out there. And one of the things that really angers me about the Herald in particular is if you go onto their website, um, and I don't really want to give advertising to listeners who might not have 
wanted to uh, to pursue this in the past, but you can just easily bring up the ads. I can tell you today there are 73 ads for uh, people selling sex services and mostly reducing women to their bus sizes and their age, et cetera, completely reductive of women. Nothing respectful about this. But what's worse is that if you were to click on, which Marie, you and I did together, uh, click on uh, one of the ads, it takes you through to a, you can share this with a friend, pass it on by email. And at the very bottom, it actually tells the, the sender that none of, neither the recipients or the receiver's details will be kept. So they've got complete anonymity. So in this case, no doubt, men were seeing this, you know, hot buster girl, uh, flicking uh, the details to their mates, et cetera. You know, that is the trend of how easy it is for people to access the bodies of even those uh, where, where there's uh, illegal crimes being committed. And what was really, really, um, I suppose, angered most of us as advocates is that not one of those men, there won't be a thousand men, because a lot of them would have been repeat returning predators, not one of them were followed up, not one of them got charged. So here in Auckland alone, we've got hundreds and hundreds of men who have been normalised to just, yep, if you want it, you can buy it. The Herald, Herald will even be a pimp. They'll profit from connecting you because that's what pimping is. You connect the arrangement between a buyer and a seller. And so these men, countless men who paid to rape a thousand times, pimped out 15-year-old girl, did so with impunity. Now, there was another case up north uh, that was more recent four men, three from uh, Northland and one from Auckland, and they received a slap by each had a different judge and they just got home detention. They could have been facing up to 10 years prison. Now, this girl was 15. A family, older family friend had been raping her and he pimped her out. And he, one of the men was 66. So this is a man 51 years older than the girl he paid to violate. And he even received empathy from a judge saying, well, he understands, you know, men have got needs. This is how insidious this behaviour has been endorsing from the courts downwards. Completely unacceptable. Are you familiar with the work of Maggie Oliver in the United Kingdom? No. So she is an ex-police officer and she has been trying to bust open the grooming gangs that have been yes. going on, particularly oh, yes, within yes, yes, immigrant yes. communities uh, in, in the United Kingdom. And uh, I've, I've watched a number of Maggie's interviews over the years, and I th think to myself, gosh, I'm so thankful that that sort of thing is not happening in this country. From what you're just telling me, it's happening, and not only is it happening, but it's been sanctioned and endorsed by those in the powers that be in this country. Exactly. And, you know, the politicians don't want, won't want to revisit this, uh, this law because... It's in their best interest to say, hey, we've got the best, this is what sticks in our throat. It's even touted as the best model to the rest of the world. And you've got other researchers coming to New Zealand saying, well, here you've got this amazing model and our country should follow it, et cetera. It's just absolutely astonishing. But yes, when you've given a damehood to someone who heads it up, and no disrespect to Catherine, you know, the thing about NZPC, you've got to take their hats off. They are a slick machine as far as getting out a sanitised gloss to the to, to whoever their supporters are. Um, but they're a million-dollar taxpayer-funded entity. Let's, let's not forget that. NZPC are now very much along the lines. I actually placed them in with the likes of Inside Out and they're all government endorsed, heavily government funded and have got the full might of PR machines and open and loving exactly. media in order to get their message yeah. across. Whereas someone like you, uh, I mean, when you were going to put this information out in regards to the 20 year anniversary to try and get your message across, what's the uptake like? Yeah, no mainstream media took it up, which is interesting because pretty every much pretty much every other media release, and I don't issue a lot. I want to make sure strategically that we're going to issue a media release on an issue that will get uptake. I would say because we did Ron Briley, we've done the Jazz Brothers, we've done you know all this about the the Herald, it, all that's taken up by media, and yet no one touched this except the alternative media yourselves and the platform. So I think I can understand also this fatigue. It's like oh. You know, not again. We, you know, we canvassed this 20 years ago. And many of us could say say the same, just put our head up and say, yeah, okay, we lost that one. But the extent of damage has just been just too horrific for women, for us as advocates to feel like we had to let this opportunity go by. Women are continually 
being abused. It astounds me because I've spoken to a lot of women in regards to the Speak Up for Women movement, also now within transgender entities. Why do women continually fall into these traps again and again and again? It's almost like we are willingly allowing this misogynistic behavior of men to denigrate, destroy, and affect women irreparably and we just fall it's it's cyclical it's really upsetting i'm finding it really upsetting yeah because it's almost like it's this whole care she'll be right bro this kind of like we won't take it can't be that bad and also we seem to conflate anything to do with sex apart from it has all been calling that as as progressive and what people need to hear is no prostitution our model is not progressive it is permissive it is permissive in that it permits men to do stuff they otherwise wouldn't be doing it permits gangs to proliferate and and use the bodies of girls and women under their control it permits traffickers to know that they can come here unlike trafficking to other countries where there is a level of illegality to start with. That's a massive hurdle. But to know they come here. In fact, I was looking just this morning at a website for New Zealand tourism, and it's got a section for where you can find certain businesses, where to find brothels and strip clubs in New Zealand. Now, the countries where this, we'll get to the Nordic model soon, the countries where the buying of sex, that now criminalise sex buying. You see, you would never see ads like this. The Herald would never have run the ads like that. That normalisation would be completely obliterated out of society. People would really have to look hard to try and find where they could go to do this, this activity. But New Zealand's just got it up on its public websites about this is a, a certain praising New Zealand as, an, as a destination. And you look at it and its homepage has got beautiful scenery, but on it is, hey, here's where you can find brothels and strip clubs and it lists all the all the cities in New Zealand. That's how normalised it's become. It's mind-blowing. So tell me about this Nordic model. You've mentioned yeah, it a couple okay. of times across the interview. What's that about? What happened in 1999 is that Sweden decided that prostitution was inherently violence against women and they were not going to tolerate it. So their feminist politicians they decided to uh, look at enacting a law that they saw that so many of the women who were involved in, in uh, on the streets and in the sectors were really economically desperate. Others were substance abuse. There were very, very few. There are some, as there are some here with NZPC, that it's not going to impact uh, too greatly. And uh, the corollary I would make, just draw an analogy with, there are some people that quite can, can uh, function very successfully on hard drugs, right? cocaine, LSD, and then they go off and they're working and they're the vast majority of people cannot, okay? Now, we don't say for those small select few people at the top, let's let's um, decriminalise hard drugs, okay? And it's the same thing what we would argue for a prostitutes collective. There will be a few that will say that they uh, haven't been damaged and, and who are we to negate their lived reality if that's, if that's what they truly believe? But in doing that, our argument is what you've done by decriminalisation is you've thrown everybody else under the bus to get your way, you know. So Sweden said was vast majority of women need to be assisted into better jobs, whatever. We are going, and men don't need to buy sex. I mean, there's plenty of other sex outlets. Bear in mind, most of these men who use go to brothels and they've got wives and partners. So it's not like they're lacking a sexual partner. Um, so they said, right, we're going to stamp this on the head. So they put in place what's called a sex buyer law, and it's known as the Nordic or the Swedish model, whereby the men get fined if they are found seeking out the act of prostitution. That money is then put in a fund that assists women into better education, substance abuse, uh, counselling, et cetera, like that. Now, what was really interesting is that three years before they put this law in place and they were, uh, it was a, a nationwide discussion about it, 20% around 20% of men supported criminalising men who bought sex. But six years after the law, so that was nine years' time, more than 60% of Swedish men supported that law. And I just think in nine short years, the education of men moving from, yes, we've got this entitlement, to no, we haven't, increased 40%. I think that is astonishing. I mean, that's really good news. That's a really good news story. Then Norway followed. Iceland is an even better story. 
Iceland in 2007 decided it would put in place such a sex bias law, and they did that with with the support of 57 percent of now I've written that down. I can't be sure it's 57 percent of men or the public. Three years after that, 2010, they took it a step further and they criminalised strip clubs. They banned any business that profited from the nudity or part nudity of their employees. So they criminalised strip clubs, not decriminalised. They banned them. They, they banned, banned them, them. Got rid of them in Iceland. There's no, no strip titty, clubs No titty Iceland. bars in Iceland. No, no, no. No, and this is the first country in the world to do it for gender reasons, for feminist reasons, as opposed to Muslim countries for religious reasons. So it can be done, and you can bring men on board. I mean, the vast majority of men, and men that will be your listeners, will be decent men, and I'm sure a lot of them have got daughters, wives, and they'll say, actually, men, we can do better. We don't need to behave this way. And so the statistics out of Sweden and Iceland shows really positive moves in the right direction. So since then... The other countries who have uh, adopted this law, there's eight, have been, uh, so there was Sweden, Norway and Iceland were the first three, and Northern Ireland, Canada, France, Ireland, and more recently, Israel. So Israel, I just had a look at recently. So if you get caught, even if you aren't caught in the act of purchasing, but if you've made steps to purchase, your first fine is the equivalent of close to 800, 900 New Zealand dollars, right? And then it doubles for the second time. And again, that money goes towards assisting women into better paying jobs, et cetera. But what is really important with those countries, particularly uh, Sweden, Norway, and Iceland, Iceland, year after year after year, going back, many, many years, has always topped, these Nordic countries top the gender equity scale under the World Economic Forum as being the most gender-respecting, gender-equal nations in the world. And that's something to be aspired to. I mean, they're doing something right. And so the difference that I've often said to people, well, look, here you've got two groups of boys. Say you look at 13, 14-year-old boys in Iceland and Sweden, they grow up knowing there is a bar in their country, you can't pay to, you know, have sex with a young woman. If you do it, you're you're breaking the law, you will be criminalised, right? In New Zealand, quite the reverse, 13 and 14-year-old boys, oh, let's go down and buy a hooker because, you know, government says it's all right. And, and so it's a pity for all those boys also that in Sweden, even if that were to be touted as a proposition, could say, hey, no, we can't do that. It's against the law. In New Zealand, those boys who want to say, no, I don't feel comfortable with that, it doesn't feel right to me, will be lightly jeered by their mates and say, well, don't be so so prudish because, you know, the government, you know, Helen Clark said it was all right and look how bigwig she is. And, um, you know, don't get me started on the Labour politicians. So, um, yeah, so... and. Look, it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, we would want a society like Sweden and Iceland where young men have been raised to respect women. And there are other platforms, as I said, like Tinder, if you want to have an equal sexual experience, et cetera, but not one when you're going to buy and act out all your porn-related fantasies on some woman who probably you're the fourth or fifth or eighth person she's seen that day, wants to vomit, is feeling miserable, but has to be there anyway because she's desperate for the money. Has there anybody in the political sphere that has shown any inkling to be able to want to even read this sort of information as an alternative? No, no, not at the moment. Um, Back in 2003, we had the United Party and we even had, was the MP for Hamilton East, Diane Yates, and she was very supportive of the Nordic model. Uh, But, you know, people weren't looking at what kind of messages is going to give to men or gangs or advertisers or whatever. They're only interested in what it was going to do for women. And that was under the big, you know, the big sell by NZPC. So right now we haven't, but look, oddly enough, and people are a bit surprised when I make this statement, this is actually not something that stop demand itself is even pushing right now. And I'll tell you why, Marie, as a barrister and as a lawyer, the last thing we want is a law that is not going to work, a law that won't be enforced. Now, right now, Canada is revisiting their law because their sex by law hasn't been adequately enforced. And so that has set up a route for prostitutes, collectives, advocacy groups to demand that they follow the New Zealand model. And right now, that decision is before the Supreme Court in Canada. 
And I was talking just last week, I sent through our media release to three people in the Attorney General's office in Canada and Toronto because they had done a Zoom meeting with me through COVID saying we're concerned that there's a real push in Canada to, to, to go to your model and we want to hear from you firsthand what, what your views are. So it was a very important Zoom meeting to have with these very th- three key people, one of whom uh, wrote their sex by law and would be having to re- rewrite the law if it changed. Canada's got the sex by law. It's not working because it's not adequately enforced. And what happened in Sweden is initially the law wasn't being forced to the satisfaction of the the politicians. What the cops were doing when they were fining men is men would say, could you send our our, our fine to our work address? And that was happening. And then the feminist politicians got onto it and said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not happening. It has to go to their home address. Well, what a fabulous deterrent, huh? that suddenly they get their fines get sent and life might open it. No, you've just got to be smart in your strategy. So when Canada enacted the law, they realised there was going to be a problem with enforcement and a group of Swedish investigators went over to educate the police. But it seems like it hasn't had a, a, a much of a positive impact. So we know our police in New Zealand are so under-resourced, it would fall right to the bottom of the pile. I mean, look, they're lucky to get to ram raids, let alone burglaries, whatever. I've spoken recently to some senior member of the police, and they agree as much as they support what we're trying to do. So it would be a worse law to have believing that we could criminalise sex buyers and it went on under everybody's noses and it wasn't able to be enforced. We are, firstly, we're not mature enough as a country. I say that New Zealand is a very, I describe us to overseas counterparts as a very adolescent country. We're not mature. We need to grow up. We need to see that this law is permissive, not healthy and progressive. For that to happen, and we need to have the law changed at a time where we can bring the vast majority of not only the public, but we get the media on board, we most specifically get politicians on board, the vast majority of them, and also law enforcement, and agreement from everyone at at a very high level in the police. That is not going to happen for years and years. So it's something that we hold out there as an ideal, but we're realistic. And because our work in Stop Demand is global, I get excited and encouraged when I see the likes of Israel adding their name to the list. But realistically, I don't hold out much hope for New Zealand or Australia. Mm. We, we are right down the pan and we're going to have to go further down the pan, sadly. As a result, we're going to have a lot more damaged people, very sadly. Yeah, New Zealand has got a, an annoying habit of being the last cab off the rank with many things, I'm sure. We had a great chat before we got started. Elsa, before we go, oh, I yes. would like to talk about Elsa. Yes, thank you. Um, so what happened was Elsa was in New Zealand. This is, a, I've given her a pseudonym. She had been working. She was very high level, highly sought after. And she was one in a, a working in, in, in the sex trade, uh, the illegal sex trade then. And she was at some men's boozy, whatever. And she was one as a raffle for men. And part of her prize was being sent over to Sweden. And she arrived in Sweden in 1999. And after she'd kind of been used up by the people who took her over there, she realised she couldn't work because there were no brothels. They brought this law in place. She heard me speak many, many years ago in the media on this. And I, I got this heartbreaking email from her. And I was in touch with her again this week. She said, Denise, I would be dead if it wasn't for the Swedish law. She said, it saved me from hell. And she hadn't even realised how broken she was. She sent me this over the weekend. This is going back over 20 years. She said, New Zealand's prostitution model is a horrific model. I won't read it all. I'm just making some statements. It's profoundly, prostitution is profoundly, severely damaging. Uh, you, When you're in it, you break, you split from yourself. And it's only when you're healing you come back into your body. Being a sex toilet for men's grotty lust, uh, your womb, your internal organs, your heart, your mind, you are damaged and a hurt mess. She says the Swedish Nordic model, buying sex being illegal, 78% of the population is well enough to say we don't want our daughters, mothers, kids damaged by sick genital-led men. It is not cool. So she's very, very clear. She said it's time New Zealand society grew up past the sickness. This woman was so severely damaged and she said, but like a lot of women in prostitution, they don't recognise the extent of the damage until they try to leave it and they try to get healing. And one woman, I think it's Chelsea, who you might get to speak to, talked about 
just waking up, punching through the night, and she shared a place with another woman who was working in an Auckland brothel, and she said she noticed she did that too. She saw her friend would be punching out during the night. It's just just so damaging. But, Marie, before we leave, I'm just wondering, there's just five things that are important in, in if we ever want to change the system, even if we don't quite get to the, the Nordic model. And what research has found, interestingly enough, is most sex buyers are not that committed. They're casual buyers. And so what the argument is, is that you've got to find a way to interrupt that casual buyer, interrupt the transaction. And there are four ways of doing that, and we fail on everyone. Increase the effort needed to buy a woman. Increase the inconvenience for buying a woman. Third one is push up price. Fourth is normalise the illegality of it. And five, provide information. We've done that in the tobacco industry. Why can't we do that in the sex industry, Denise? Precisely. Well, we've, you and I have got a lot to talk about, so we're definitely going to get back because I think I would like to talk about porn. I think it's important yeah. that we talk about porn. Good news is, is I have got Ali booked for next week. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to talking to her. And as with any of these topics that we're touching here on Reality Check Radio and here on Counterculture, you're not hearing these conversations anywhere else. So if you are listening to this and you know somebody who is working within this environment, you have concerns, they're not getting the other side of the story please do share these conversations. You're able to share them. When the replays go out, they're shareables. They're easy to to send out to people. Denise is going to send me a whole bunch of resources, which I'm going to give to our team at inbox at realitycheck.radio, which you can access from there. But if there is a website or an initial point of contact, Denise, for you, what is that? It would just be on our website, which is www.stopdemand.org. There's no NZ, just .org, stopdemand.org, um, and there's a contact page on there, or it's simply action at stopdemand.org if people want to email us directly. Great to hear from anybody. Thank you very much, Denise, for being so generous with your time this morning. There is still more to come here on Counterculture on Reality Check Radio, so don't disappear, including Woke Word of the Week and, of course, Media Matters with Marty Gibson. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.